This episode is sponsored by Heptama Research, an international peer-reviewed gold open access, continuously published online academic journal founded by OAE Publishing Inc. The journal aims to provide an academic exchange platform focusing on all topics of liver cancer and its related diseases through publications, video abstracts, webinars and interviews. ILCA is today the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Cynthia Moylan and I'm an associate professor of medicine in, in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Duke University Medical Center and the Director of Hepatology at the Durham Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. I have the pleasure of being joined today by my colleague and friend, Dr. Kara Wegerman. Thanks, Cindy. I'm Dr. Kara Wegerman, a medical instructor in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Duke University Health System. Pleasure to be here. So today we're going to talk about our recent publication in Hepatoma Research titled Challenges and Barriers in Hepatocellular Carcinoma Surveillance for Patients with Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease and which many of you know, now the name has changed of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to metabolic associated steatotic liver disease or MASLD. So we'll try to remember to call it MASLD and not NAFLD, but those two are interchangeable today. Our manuscript reviews several important challenges and barriers that currently exist caring for patients with MASLD cirrhosis. And these include a discussion of the scale of the problem, the current lack of limitation, the current lack and limitations of accurate risk stratification tools in order to improve detection and prevention of hepatocellular carcinoma in patients with MASLD cirrhosis, potential solutions to address these limitations. And it ends with the discussion of current disparities that exist in HCC surveillance. So, Kara, just to get started, maybe you can highlight for our listeners the scale of the problem and why we think it's critical for providers to be aware of the scale of the problem. Yeah, that's a great point, Cindy. And we in the field are definitely concerned about both the prevalence and the rising um, incidence and prevalence of MASLD. In the United States, we think that MASLD affects about one third of our population and somewhere between a quarter to maybe even 40% of the world's population. So this is a huge number of patients that we're talking about. Both are projected to increase the U.S. and the global prevalence. Some studies have shown about a 130% increase in the number of hepatocellular carcinoma or HCC cases just from MASLD over the next decade or so. We also know that pediatric obesity and pediatric MASLD are increasing, which means we're going to have more young adults developing cirrhosis and liver cancer in the future unless we urgently do something from a public health perspective. In the United States, we have seen rates of HCC from viral hepatitis, that is hepatitis B and C, declining because we have robust newborn screening and vaccination programs, and we're doing a better, although not amazing, job of treating patients with hepatitis C with direct-acting antiviral medications. But unfortunately, the rising epidemic of MASLD may actually neutralize some of these gains. Yeah, it's a huge problem, and I know that you and I are seeing it in clinic every day. And so what, what is the estimated annual risk for HCC in patients with MASLD cirrhosis? And what about, what about MASH, which used to be called NASH? 
So in mastled cirrhosis, it's about one and a half percent per year. Those with MASH have a lower risk than that, um, but they, they do have higher risk than other chronic liver disease etiologies who don't have cirrhosis. Yeah. So it seems like the annual incidence is somewhat lower, but given the sheer number of people that are at risk, I think this is a really big problem. And so we as hepatologists and the GI societies do recommend that we do surveillance for patients with mast cirrhosis for hepatocellular carcinoma. These are recommended for patients with known cirrhosis, but I know a lot of providers who actually do this in, in those with advanced fibrosis without cirrhosis because of the increased risk of hepatocellular carcinoma in those patients with MASH. But we don't really have any clear guidelines for surveillance in those patients. And so, Kara, what do you think are kind of the important studies that are coming down the road? And, and what are the recommendations right now about how we can use the tools that we have currently to do surveillance in patients with mast cell cirrhosis for HCC? Yeah, I think you've highlighted one of the big questions in our field, Cindy, which is, are there people who do not have cirrhosis who need HCC surveillance? Um, Our guidelines currently don't recommend that, as you point out, although practices vary center to center and clinician to clinician, and we don't have a good way to pick out the highest risk patients yet. You know, we do have several low-tech, cheap tools um, at our disposal already. We know that there are several demographic and clinical risk factors that are highly predictive of developing HCC, fibrosis stage obviously being the most important and the most important driver of liver-related outcomes in these patients. So, you know, thinking about staging fibrosis non-invasively in all of our patients is a great first step if we don't have higher-tech tools. We know that increasing age, male sex, diabetes, smoking, alcohol, and race and ethnicity are all clinical um, predictors for HCC. And so combining these clinical factors, which we generally know about all of our patients, is a great place to start. As I mentioned, fibrosis state is a, a very strong determinant of liver cancer risk. And we have non-invasive ways to score that, including the FIB4 score, which is widely used and validated, the NAFLD fibrosis score, transient elastography or fibroscan for patients whose scores suggest advanced fibrosis. Several single nucleotide polymorphisms have gained some traction, although are not widely used in clinical practice. The most widely studied of those is PNPLA3, so thinking about lipid metabolism and risk of progression. Um, That has been studied in large groups such as the UK Biobank and found to have predictive value for HCC. So possibly, you know, genetic information like that combined with clinical data could be powerful. And many others, um, including Eugene Hoshida's group at UT Southwestern, have developed Um, prognostic scores. They have a a signature based on liver tissue and also one um, based in blood, the secretome signature that predicts future HCC risk. So we're definitely seeing a lot more data come out um, from people who are trying to find non-invasive predictors. Yeah, great. That is a great summary, Kara. I think, you know, we have a lot of tools and something that we use in the VA health system as well is a a score that was developed by Dr. George Iwanu called, and you can access this through the internet, www.hccrisk.com. 
And the model includes age, gender, diabetes, BMI, platelet count, serum albumin, AST, and the square root of ALT, the ratio to those. The ROC curve is not great, but it's about 0.75 for NAFLD cirrhosis. So it's helpful, but again, all of these tools are still imperfect. So just to summarize, you know, we do recommend that we do surveillance for patients with NAFLD, NAFLD massled cirrhosis. That's typically done with ultrasound and serum alpha fetoprotein every six months, at least that's what we do in the United States. Again, those are limited somewhat by the lack of sensitivity and specificity. So, you know, I know a lot of groups are working to develop better surveillance tools and just to try to figure out that big problem at who's at increased risk. So some of those are better imaging, other serum tests. I don't know, Kara, if you want to take us through a little bit of things that are coming down the pike that are being studied right now that you think are going to be useful in the future. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot out there. And I think what ultimately gains traction in clinical practice, as you know, is really a combination of accuracy, ease of use, cost. I mean, these are all important factors and ability of our patients to access these things. I think certainly there's been a lot of discussion about the need for better imaging. We know that ultrasound, you know, is not a perfect test. In fact, sensitivity is as low as 40% in some studies. So not a great screening level test in our population. And we know that ultrasound performs poorly in patients with obesity, and many of our patients are obese. So it's particularly not a good test in patients with massled cirrhosis. There is a large uh, multicenter study looking at abbreviated MRI protocols. So can we do an MRI that's less time-consuming and less costly, knowing that MRI has better sensitivity for HCC. There's also um, increasing study of radiomics, so using existing radiology technologies to see more advanced characteristics of HCC. There are a lot of blood-based tests, so the GALAD score, um, which combines age, sex, um, and several protein markers, um, has has really robust data. And then there are DNA methylation-based tests. Um, the best known of this is the OncoGuard, which is currently being studied, sort of the equivalent of the ColoGuard that combines protein-based markers and DNA methylation. And then liquid biopsy is sort of our ability to detect what's going on in the liver in the blood. So all of these have made it through kind of initial investigation stages, but how they really perform in a you know, real world population level cohort kind of remains to be seen. You know, I'm hopeful that these will get through clinical trials and and help us move forward and, and do a better job figuring out who's at increased risk. So another barrier that you highlight in the manuscript is is disparities in HCC surveillance. And, and some of that's due to access, some of that's due to increased awareness, and the fact that many patients with MASL don't realize that they have MASL, nor do they realize that they have cirrhosis, so they're not being surveyed. So maybe just briefly, could you summarize a little bit of, of what barriers we need to be aware of and try to uh, improve access to care for patients who really need this surveillance? Great question. I think this is a major, major issue because no matter what we come up with as, quote, the best test for these patients for surveillance, we still have to get them in to do the test. Um, And so no matter what the future holds, whether it's blood-based or imaging-based testing or a combination, we have to at some point have patients come in for testing. Um, We know that patients who are referred to hepatologists have higher rates of HCC surveillance. Unsurprisingly, many of our patients with MASLD have numerous medical comorbidities. And so every time they go to their primary care physician or provider, 
you know, that that person is dealing with diabetes and obesity and heart disease. So many other things on the list. And it's very difficult to keep track of something that has to happen every six months in the context of multiple chronic medical conditions. So I do think for the patients with cirrhosis, those with advanced fibrosis who have clinical or non-invasive blood-based risk markers, that hepatology referral makes sense for us to kind of keep track of those high-risk patients. Not everyone has access to a hepatologist either because of where they live, because of insurance reasons. And so we do need to think about ways to reach out um, via, say, telehealth um, to help patients access subspecialty care. Um, We know that both race and socioeconomic status are associated um, with HCC surveillance. Um, Other issues such as transportation, um, ability to take time off work, you know, patients with paid time off versus those without, you know, maybe less of an issue in Europe, much more of an issue in the United States where many hourly workers do not have paid time off to come to appointments, to come to ultrasounds. And so some of these things require us to think creatively. And for some of our patients, a blood-based test may be much more accessible than an imaging-based test because maybe they could have a blood-based test done at their primary care's office and shipped off to a specialty lab. could be done on their own time so they wouldn't have to miss work. Um, Much more difficult when you're talking about imaging where you come in for a fixed appointment and you may have to wait. It may take, you know, a good chunk of your day. Um, So I do think... As we think about the various menu of options for HCC surveillance, you know, the best test is the one we can get done. And if it comes down to a test that a patient can achieve every six months, you know, that would really be ideal. But obviously, there's also a population level investment that needs to happen, understanding the burden of HCC and the benefits of detecting it early when it's curable. Yeah, I think you summarize that so well, Kara. And I think one of the nice analogies that you have often made is to colonoscopy. You know, there are lots of ways to screen for colorectal cancer. It's just trying to find the preferred way that the patient will actually get it done. And my hope is that in the future that that we'll have multiple avenues of doing this for patients with massled MASH and massled cirrhosis you know, and and whatever that patient can do. And hopefully we'll have good sensitivity and specificity um, for HCC in these patients. Is there anything else that you want to just summarize in the end? I thought you did a really great job kind of outlining the problem and some of the potential solutions. You know, I think, Cindy, the the big questions in our field are what is going to be the population level test if it's not going to be ultrasound anymore? Which of these very promising blood-based tests might take its place or might be the first step in a pathway that includes imaging? Um, How can we as hepatologists partner with primary care to ensure that screening surveillance gets done however it needs to get done? And how can we think about, you know, increasing our reach to patients who are not yet able to access this care? Um, I think the the research question that you and I and many others are interested in is identifying our highest risk patients who are not identified in current guidelines, i.e. those without cirrhosis. How do we pick out the, the percentage of patients that are at particularly high risk for HCC and plug them into screening programs? Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks. This episode is sponsored by Heptoma Research, an international peer-reviewed, gold-open access, continuously published online academic journal 
founded by OAE Publishing Inc. The journal aims to provide an academic exchange platform focusing on all topics of liver cancer and its related diseases through publications, video abstracts, webinars and interviews. ILCA is today the world's leading and most important multidisciplinary society tackling liver cancer. ILCA